This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to episode four of 12 of our first series called AI Futures, where we're going to be stretching your imagination from the near-term applications and implications of AI to the longer-term considerations of where it's taking us. That's the purpose of this series. All 12 episodes in this series are focused on AI governance. Those of you who are familiar with AI governance or with artificial general intelligence just as ideas will probably be familiar with the Oxford Future of Humanity Institute and its founder, Nick Bostrom. Nick Bostrom was on the program here some six long years ago. I met him at Harvard University after he gave a talk, chatted for a bit, and we had him on the show. Nick is one of the very handful of living thinkers that I consider to be really most important in molding some of my own thought in this domain. And uh, everybody at FHI that I've ever met is extremely sharp. Our guest this week is positively no exception. Ben Garfinkel is a research fellow with the Future of Humanity Institute with a focus, snugly enough, on international security, privacy, and long-term forecasting. We speak with Ben about artificial intelligence governance, issues around centralization versus decentralization of governance, the pros and cons there, the influence of big tech, and much, much more. I consider myself lucky to have Ben as an acquaintance. We've spoken at some of the same events for Interpol and for the United Nations. I like Ben for a number of reasons, not only just because of his smarts and his ideas, but also his delivery. You'll find Ben is a very measured person. He's not bringing a lot of heat behind opinions and ideas, but really presenting possibilities in a very open and sort of objective sense. And I think that that's the tone that we deserve to have more of in the uh, artificial general intelligence conversation. We stretch a bit into the future considerations, but we stay a little bit more near and midterm with Ben in this particular episode. As I mentioned before, episode 1 through 12, we're going to be going from near-term implications of AI governance all the way to long-term, where we're really thinking about what's the interaction between man and machine, what's the future of sort of the human experience, for lack of better terms. So today, we're a little bit more in the early and the mid-stage, but Ben brings some great perspectives that I think are necessary for the conversation today, and I hope that you enjoy them as well. I've mentioned it in a few other episodes, but I want to say it one more time here. I'd love your perspective on this series. This is very new. I've gotten some great emails back and LinkedIn messages from our listeners, and that has meant a lot to me. And I really want to know what folks think about this series. Do you want to see this as a separate podcast because you're annoyed that it's in your feed and it doesn't have to do with business? Or not directly with business, right? It's a little bit more tertiary. Do you like it on the weekends? Do you like it if it was sort of spun off into another kind of a show. We have a single question survey. It's not a, it's not a survey. It's a, it's one, it's a one question web form that you can find at emerj.com slash pod, the number three, that's pod three. When you go there, you'll simply be able to submit your response to what you think about this new series and your answers, listeners, is going to be what's going to define our next series on AI futures. And if we spin this off into its own thing, or if we keep it as kind of a weekend program, or maybe even do something totally different with it, it's going to be based on what you folks think because your opinion matters. So I'll throw that out there the last time. I'm not going to mention it every introduction to the Saturday series. Don't worry. But if you haven't already, I'm telling you, this is me, Dan Fagella. I run the show here at Emerge. It would mean a lot to me if you were to fill that out, especially if you're a longtime listener. I value your thoughts greatly. Without further ado, I value Ben's thoughts greatly, and I'd like for him to be able to get started and rocking and rolling here. So this is Ben Garfinkel with the Oxford Future of Humanity Institute here on our AI Futures series about AI governance. Let's jump in. So Ben, we're opening up on this theme of sort of central international AI governance. Some folks are for, some folks are against. There's obviously different gradients of what that could mean. 
all in all, do you think there's a way people should be thinking about this? Do you consider it to be a, you know, a need at this point or what's your take broadly? I mean, I think just one useful story in place is just notice that there are, I think, some fairly general upsides and downsides to centralization. And then if you're looking at some specific governance problem, you can think, you know, to what extent these different upsides or downsides apply. So I might just like run through a quick, you know, I guess sort of generic upsides and downsides. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, sounds great. I mean, so one general upside of centralization is it makes it much easier for people to to coordinate in contexts where where that's important. One concrete example of this is, let's say that there's some question about whether some piece of, let's say, AI research should be published, you know, like freely online, or whether it might be to some extent dangerous or socially harmful. So obviously, there's like a, a well-known case recently of OpenAI deciding not to publish uh, a language model online, GPT-2, because they thought there might be some chance it could be used to sort of generate fake news too yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. And this is sort of an interesting situation where it's obviously a little bit ambiguous ahead of time, like, would it actually be bad or good to make this thing, you know, freely available? You don't really know until you've done it. And different actors will tend to come to different judgments just because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of sort of background assumptions that you bring to it. And in a case like this, if you just allow a lot of different actors to sort of freely make this decision on their own, like, do we publish this sort of thing? Or do we not freely publish this sort of thing? You know, odds are at least one person, at least by sheer chance, is going to come to the conclusion, oh, yeah, you know, it's probably probably good to publish this. And you're just going to end up in a world where it doesn't really matter whether or not it's wise, just almost statistically, someone's going to take this action and sort of, you know, the group as a whole can't sort of coordinate to come to some some best decision. Whereas if you have some sort of process in place where there's um, at least a, a way for different actors to sort of sync up in some forum and semi-democratically kind of get on the same page about these sorts of things or follow some sort of process that involves some degree of centralization, then you can avoid this sort of dynamic where just it's sort of inevitable what will happen and people can't really, at least as a group, freely choose. Where the, the idea, I suppose, it's um, associated with the term sometimes the unilateralist curse um, in the context of a paper written Actually, the what's, it, what's it called again? The unilateralist curse. Unilateralist curse. Now, I'm familiar with Bostrom's black orb idea. Is this similar? No. So, it's, so it's it's actually somewhat somewhat different. So, the idea is basically that there's some generic situations where, let's say, a group could either do one of two things. Like, there's some set of actors, and they can each make some decision. Like, either take some action or don't take some action, and all it takes is for one actor to decide to take the action to like really change the world. And the idea is if everyone is deciding independently, then it's quite likely that at least one actor through sort of sheer chance will decide to take the action and have this big impact on the world. And so if you have a large enough act- number of actors making this decision independently, and Someone even if they're will. fairly rational, if yeah. it's just like a little bit random what evidence to get or what considerations yeah, come to mind, yeah. it becomes increasingly statistically likely that the world will be changed in this particular way. And so insofar as you have people acting unilaterally, it can be, to some extent, it can become almost inevitable what will happen, as opposed to there being actually like a mechanism for people to sync up and make whatever the best decision is. Okay, so this is tying to his black ball analogy. I, I would say it myself, but this is, you, you're more familiar with Bostrom than I. It feels as though they correlate, right? Because one of those things could be very yeah. a very dangerous, inevitable thing. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, just so people can understand? Yeah. So Nick, who should maybe clarify, is the director of the Future of Humanity Institute, where, <laughs> yep. I, where I work. Hopefully our um, listeners are aware of it. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Hopefully from there. Yeah. yeah. She has this other, this other recent paper called the Vulnerable World Hypothesis, where the idea is um, when you develop some new technology, it can have obviously positive or negative effects. And 
you don't really know really ahead of time until you've like thought of a technology or come up with an idea. It's really hard to basically predict the shape that future technological progress will take. And so it's really real hard to rule out the idea that someone might come up with some invention where if it's sort of invented and put out there, it will have like really radically destructive effects that are quite difficult to avoid without sort of really strong controls. And so an analogy he uses to illustrate this is um, you might imagine, let's say, a counterfactual world where obviously we know that nuclear weapons like arguably have like some you know risks associated with them, um, arguably not not necessarily super great for the world that they were developed. But you can imagine a counterfactual world where like, you know, we're sort of very lucky that nuclear weapons are quite hard to develop. Yes. Um, you know, it takes like years and years and you need like relatively rare materials and you leave like a big footprint if you're doing it. It's hard to do it in secret. You need to sort of big facilities. Uh, but you can imagine a world where nuclear weapons had turned out to be very easy to make. Like the materials for them were just like readily available. Like I think like the, a microwave example, and some sand, right? Yeah. Maybe you put some, some sand in the microwave and then <laughs> you, you know, create a nuclear have, explosion. Yeah. Yeah. And you imagine if we lived in that world, then, you know, maybe we just really would have been screwed socially. Cause if that information got out and became publicly known, now, anyone who has access to sand in a microwave <laughs> can cause a huge amount of destruction. And it's really hard to imagine how people could really implement good enough surveillance or control of the supply of sand or, or whatever to prevent you know, massive proliferation, essentially, of these like, very dangerous weapons. Yes. And it is like, you know, we're very fortunate that nuclear weapons turned out to be really difficult to make. It seems like we couldn't have known that really, really far ahead of time. So there's a sense in which we sort of got lucky. And you might think that, you know, maybe we won't always be lucky that maybe as we keep developing new technologies, someone will eventually come up with some idea where sort of once it's out there, it's really hard to basically actually implement governance structures that are sufficient to prevent, you know, a whole lot of damage from being done. And so I guess insofar as there's a connection between the, um, I guess, the, this idea of the Ulanarius curse and this idea of sort of a black ball technology, like a, yeah. a technology that you sort of, the analogy is sort of picking technology that I'm going to earn you never really know what you're going to get. Yep. And then one day you might get this, you know, this destructive black ball technology. I like that he says urn and not jar as well. I like, I like yeah. his, his, his ode to the classical uh, era there. It's, it's, it's lovely. But yeah, you draw yeah, a black uh, ball and then everybody, everybody's extinct. Yeah, and it is, um, to some extent, insofar as there's a connection, you might worry that, um, you know, lots of independent developers and researchers and scientists are sort of always pulling sort of, you know, new ideas out of the urn. And then obviously, you know, the odds of something like this being found by any given person are extremely, extremely low. But you might think that, you know, if you don't have a, a really centralized system of making judgments about sort of what sort of research to disseminate and what to sort of like try and keep private or sort of control, that might be inevitable that that someone will pick the, you know, the yeah. black ball. And then when they do, if enough people sort of pick it and then independently need to decide whether or not to sort of like put it back in, someone might mistakenly make the decision not to put it back in. Yep. Okay. So th this is, you're articulating one of the benefits of coordination or the benefits of, of international governance would be this coordination where maybe something like that would have a lower likelihood of occurring. Right. I suppose that's a very, very roundabout way of saying just if you're making decisions about, let's say, publication of AI research or whether or not to put some application out in the world, it's really nice in some circumstances if people can coordinate as opposed to independently making decisions about what's appropriate and what's not. Do you see um, that as among the primary benefits or are there one or two others that for you are really strong benefits of uh, international governance? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of other ones. So one is just there can be some circumstances where you have some sort of collective action problem where, you know, basically sort of a prisoner's dilemma dynamic where, say, multiple actors realize that there might be something sort of, let's say, socially harmful about some technology being used. 
or it might be in some way destabilizing and just bad if multiple you know actors sort of have this technology but each actor sort of independently thinks well you know if i don't you know put this application out there or rush it out there or if i don't sort of like to some extent put safety or fairness or whatever concerns aside then you know my competitor will put them aside for a competitive advantage yep. and then you know i'll just be screwed so even though i recognize that this in an ideal world we just like wouldn't you know put this sort of thing out there i just expect other people to and they rationally expect me to because they know I'm running the same sort of logic and it's just a little bit like inevitable, you know, well, this thing will happen. This is um, arms and so, race prevention more or less, Ben? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So I think this shows up in a lot of different areas. So at the the company level, there might be some context where you have, let's say, safety or bias or accelerator concerns are somewhat shrugged aside because everyone's racing the market. For example, the, um, let's say, Uber self-driving car fatality that happened, I forget how long ago this was. It seems like this was like a pretty avoidable thing. It seems like there are lots of corners that were cut on, on safety. You might imagine that in an ideal world, you know, every company would prefer to like just avoid fatalities at the industry level because that's probably bad for everyone when that happens. And just like all be on the same page that, um, okay, we're going to take it, you know, sufficiently slow to avoid these sorts of like really, really bad, bad accidents. Whereas if you're, you know, concerned that maybe your competitors you're not really that confident that your competitors are going to like take safety that seriously. You have an incentive to sort of cut these corners and race ahead yourself. Or at like, let's say a military level, there may be some technologies where, you know, both actors would prefer for, so let's say autonomous weapon systems. It might be the case that there's some risk of, let's say accidents or just misbehavior or just things sort of going wrong with these. But if at some point in the future, it becomes sufficiently clear that like, oh, there's actually some substantial tactical advantage to deploy relatively autonomous systems, if your opponent is going to be doing the same, then you might imagine a scenario where militaries race ahead deploying, you know, systems that could be relatively dangerous, even though both militaries in the ideal world would prefer to just like have a temporary moratorium on them until they sort of get the kinks worked out. If they can't coordinate to, to implement that or don't trust the other side to implement it, then you can have these scenarios where the thing just races ahead, even though, you know, ideally no one really wants this. So that's a closely related way in which centralization of power about what applications go out when or what regulations are in place can be quite, quite useful. When you think about the key benefits to the other side of the coin, where maybe we see a future where the central sort of governance of artificial intelligence is, is not a thing at all. In other words, we just everybody's got mm -hmm. their own Petri dish and their own set of laws and sort of industry soft law maybe or something, but otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, it just goes on. W what do you see as sort of I guess, upsides there, argued upsides? Yeah, so I think there's a few. So one is, insofar as you have a lot of people, sort of different groups making decisions independently about what to make or how to design it or just how to do various things, then it means you have, can to some extent have more experimentation, um, which can be good for just like innovation or figuring out other ways to do things. Whereas if there's, let's say, overly restrictive regulations, you know, that come down from a central place, yeah, or, you know, yeah. like that. Then you have a lot less sort of like trial and error or a lot less of a, a sort of kind of interesting stuff happening that pushes the field forward. So I guess talking at the, let's say, company level, you may also think as well that um, if you have like, let's say, just a small number of, let's say, large tech companies that, you know, are like really primarily driving, let's say, you know, R&D as opposed to a more like decentralized ecosystem, a lot of different people trying a lot of different things. They might just end up in scenarios where there's a limited number of actors. Maybe these actors are in, in some sense just like conservative or like not willing to sort of try new things or there's certain frictions that just make them like unlikely to, to like 
sort of pursue certain innovations, then that's also something that could slow progress down quite a bit. Other thing as well is competition can, to some extent, be good if um, what actors are competing on is socially valuable, where if you take, let's say, the case of, that's not really an AI case, like the case of Facebook, a lot of people have like, you know, consumers have like pretty strong ethical concerns about Facebook. Like it's not just that they don't like certain aspects of the product. They actually sort of have some sort of ethical version of the things that Facebook has done. And because of network effects, it's really hard for any other social network to really compete with yeah, Facebook. Yeah. And it seems like if there was more competition um, between social networks, it's plausible people would actually, you know, vote with their feet on ethical issues. And, you know, tech companies would actually have stronger incentives to try and, you know, actually like meet people's ethical preferences. So there's some sense in which lack of competition can allow companies that are doing things that people or consumers consider like ethically bad to sort of just be complacent about it and not really sort of solve the issue that much. Maybe you could extend that to international considerations, right, as well. Maybe hypothetically, somebody really disagrees with the United States and certain things they're doing with technology or policy, they can move yeah, to absolutely. Germany. And you could think about cable companies, right? Everybody has gripes yeah. about, you know, whoever offers them internet because there's only what, yeah. one one provider in this part of Vermont and they're just going to charge yeah. you whatever they want. And so a similar kind of downside there that if it, if it is centralized, then you might not have any way out or like you said, to vote with your feet. You might not have that yeah. ability. Yeah. For example, like I absolutely know, um, you know, I have a lot of friends who now work in the tech industry, and I do think it actually does weigh in people's decisions, like what the reputations of different companies are, where, you know, for example, I think like friends I, I, I have who've worked at Facebook, there's a, like, I guess an apologetic thing you need to do at like cocktail parties of like, oh, you know, I work at Facebook, but I'm not one of the like, the like, let Russian bots on people. I'm I, like, I, not one of the, I'm not. I feel like that's so new, though. That's so new. Yeah. I feel like. Three years ago, you wouldn't be apologetic, right? Or four years ago, yeah. right? You wouldn't be apologetic. It's just public perception. Like, do they know that the soul of Facebook is now rotten and cold? Or do they just yeah. know other people have a damn opinion of them? Like, that's, I think, a pretty big question. <laughs> but it's at least yeah. the perception matters. Like you're saying, at cocktail parties, they have to respond. Yeah, I think if you don't have done this, but anecdotally, it seems like... It does actually affect where if you know you get offers from multiple tech companies. Yeah. I think like the the public perception of company does actually have an impact on what people do. And if you have only a really small number of tech companies, it reduces the extent to which like you know people have a number of different options for like prominent cool places to go to. Got it. And yeah. I think yeah, it's another vote with your feet sort of issue. So so we have these yeah. pros and these cons here, and these are obviously broader dynamics than just AI governance. But let's let's wrap mm -hmm. up talking about AI governance specifically. You know, generally speaking, where do you stand on what may be required for the governance of AI? You might think about this in multiple parameters, Ben. Maybe mm -hmm. right now you have one opinion, but you think after we cross threshold X, things ought to be different. What is your take there, you know, near and long term? Yeah, so I think maybe start with near. So at the moment, I don't have the sense that very, essentially, I don't have the sense that very, um, let's say, strong or formal governance is that necessary in part because we just don't really have a very clear sense of what the issues are, what the issues will look like in the relatively near future. I agree. There's a lot of different domains where, you know, people point at different things and say, oh, perhaps this could be a serious issue. So for example, you know, autonomous weapon systems in let's say the military or like more international context is something that there's a lot of concern about. But at the same time, we just really don't even know what these will look like, what they like, how they'll actually be deployed. It's you know, are we talking about like anti-personnel things or things which like are not used against like other weapons platforms? Like what does the stuff actually like look like? 
And then in terms of like what you actually sort of want as an outcome, it's like obviously extremely unclear given this uncertainty about what this technology even looks like. Would it be destabilizing? Would it increase or decrease civilian casualties? Like would certain kinds of it be like, let's say positive or negative? And, you know, given that sort of thing, you, it seems like, at least in my opinion, like clearly premature to be trying to say push for some specific arms agreement or push for some specific, you know, form of sort of international verification or control. Yeah, of trust um, or security or of R&D or any of that. Yeah. In your opinion. So that's right? like, yeah, at least current opinion. And it may, you know, and it may become clear in the future as, you know, technology emerges, like, oh, actually this thing could be like very destabilizing. You know, there may be justifications for specific sorts of agreements around it in the same way of agreement, you know, have arms agreements about missiles and nuclear warheads or prohibitions on things like biological and chemical weapons. And it could be, you know, necessarily in the future, but at the moment, I think it'd be premature to try and push for any sort of specific, you know, form of international governance or any specific, you know, sort of agreement. Do you like what's currently occurring, which is a, a proliferation of various ethical processes and thought principles being developed? You know, the, the OECD has yeah. theirs. The IEEE is trying to bake something in on kind of the technical side and get people on the same page. There's different groups sort of coming up with what they think are critical issues and maybe how that stuff could be integrated in tech. So it's really a flurry of ideas, maybe some places where that can be applied and actually tested. Do you see that as a good phase or do you think we should be stepping off in a different way today? So I think I'm actually, I'm very pro principles at the moment, right? I think the right thing for people to be doing now to a large extent is like, so I guess there's a couple of things that are quite useful now. So I think one is just people trying to get clear on high level principles where, you know, it's not necessarily clear what these will actually imply in terms of concrete actions, but this is something that, you know, let's say a tech company can do today. It's like, what are the sort of social or, you know, ethical criteria that they're going to use to make decisions in the future? And maybe they don't know, for example, let's say, what the actual social impact of something like facial recognition will be. Or they don't necessarily know what sorts of decisions they need to make when self-driving cars are actually close to being able to like actually like be really, really on the road in a serious way. Or they don't know, let's say, what really interesting applications they may develop in the future if they're just doing relatively blue sky yeah, research at the moment. Um, but it does seem like it's not too early to sort of actually say what your criteria will be in the future or say at least the process by which you'll make these decisions. And I think there'll also probably be a nice process you can have of different actors putting forward different sets of principles and then there being some sort of disagreement or essentially like informal negotiation about what's sensible and what's not sensible. Um, I think that's something that's definitely not not too early to do today. And then the other thing that's like, you know, quite related is trying to establish like forums, basically, for different actors to discuss these things. Where, you know, so one example I think is, you know, the partnership on AI, which right now is... I'm not sure exactly to describe it. It's sort of, to some extent, like um, it's an organization that serves as sort of a superstructure for connecting lots of different organizations in the AI space, both tech companies and nonprofits and academic groups, and organizes meetings between them to discuss different issues like publication norms and things like that. And I think a lot of the value of the partnership on AI at the moment is not necessarily like any specific thing they've done so far, but they're providing, let's say, they're providing a structure which if it lasts for like a long time could be quite useful for like any sort of issue that comes up in the future or any sorts of concrete decisions that people in the industry will need to make because without it it's like i like it's not nearly so easy for lots of different companies to get together and coordinate or companies to meet people from civil society and discuss these things so the proliferation of ideas and their variations and as you had said where the rubber meets the road on those ideas may not be clear but we can discuss it we can discuss how the rubber would meet the road and as you're saying we can create forums to proliferate said discussion and to have the hashing out of the maybe competing ideas or maybe 
ideas that are able to be merged or compatible or, or, or not, that, that this is maybe the, the phase we should be in, in which case I, I, I suspect maybe you'd be happy with where we stand today, given the lay of the land. Yeah, to, to some extent. Well, another just quick example I'll give of this is, um, so let's say the question of like publication, when is it like okay to publish, again, like some piece of AI research that might be door use or publish, you know, the full code versus redacting certain information. I think it'd be super, super premature at the moment for, let's say, you know, national government to come out with like some strict set of regulations for like what you can publish and what you cannot publish, just because we just, we don't have that many examples of really obviously dual use AI research that's really concerning. And then there's just a lot we don't know about the cost benefit analysis here and just how this will essentially work. So I'd be really concerned if anyone actually tried to sort of like, let's say, push for some strict piece of legislation that says, you know, what you can publish and what you cannot publish. Like, I think that would be really bad. Some superstructure that can actually like legally bar publication from happening. But at the moment, it's not at all too early for researcher groups to be having at least informal discussions or the, the community to be trying to form norms about publication that aren't strict, you know, can be adjusted over time, can change, you know, currently open to debate. And you started to see that a bit with like things like GPT-2. I think over time, if norms can be worked out in this more informal way, that really help if, you know, eventually reach the stage where it becomes clear we need some more strict form of regulation. But I think this sort of lays a foundation that um, makes it easier for regulation to occur in the future if it becomes necessary to do so. And also builds up sort of expertise and an understanding of the relevant considerations. Yeah, I would agree with you there. And I guess closing note here, Ben, is around what thresholds maybe you could foresee when such international governance might be more pressing, when maybe you'd, you'd potentially lean more in that direction. Maybe you wouldn't altogether, and I'd be open to your take, but do you think there's a threshold whereby across the board, almost in your opinion, there should be some international coordination at a heavy level? I mean, I think it is possible. So I guess there's there's a couple of things here. So one is um, there's at least some minimal you know level of need for international coordination, at the very least on things like standard setting. And then there's a question of like, will it be necessary or will it be a really good idea for there to be something that's, let's say, a lot more hardcore, like, let's say, in the military domain, close to like the Chemical Weapons Convention, but for like certain forms of autonomy or you know, yep. something like that. And then there's also kind of an additional level of like, would it both be the case that something like that is desirable and plausible, which is obviously like, you know, a higher barrier that, that isn't always met. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've actually become like increasingly um, less confident that the stricter the thing is. So, I mean, I think it's, I find it not implausible, like not at all implausible that at some point in the future, it's going to become clear to us that um, certain applications of AI or certain ways of using certain applications will actually be like really worth having, you know, strong agreements about or, or, or strong international coordination about. I don't find it inevitable by any means, but I think just sort of outside kind of, I don't know, somewhat outside view perspective, it's quite clear that as time goes on and more and more of the things that um, humans can do become automatable and there are more and more applications that like enable new sorts of technologies we haven't had before. It seems, yeah, not unreasonable to think that at least some small portion of these will be in the category of like very, very disruptive things that you don't want to disallow in a completely uncoordinated manner. Even thought like a very specific story. And then there's some more specific stories people have, let's say in the military domain about you know, oh, if you have like autonomous weapon systems, then maybe, for example, one thing that happens is um, you can like accidentally escalate a crisis before like any humans really have the chance to get involved and figure out like, oh man, this was actually like, yeah, not at all the thing that we we were expecting to happen here. 
where if you sort of remove humans from the loop to some extent, you can end up with things to get out of hand before humans can like peek in and notice that this has happened. And so there's some specific stories that people have that I find not implausible. I don't find it, you know, inevitable that this will actually be a super, super pressing concern. But at the same time, I think we we ought to be prepared for the yet yeah, far from inconceivable possibility that um yeah, there'll be serious issues that do actually warrant pretty strong coordination if possible. Well, I know we're just wrapping up here, but I, I think that, as you mentioned, the more harsh and limiting the laws are, maybe the less plausible they become, particularly across the borders of nations mm-hmm. with gargantuanly different objectives and values. I think there's troubles there. But in terms of setting the near-term foundations, hopefully the world mm-hmm. is on that track with the discourse happening at the level of the UN and the World Bank and the OECD mm-hmm. and whatnot. So my fingers are crossed that some of that knowledge sharing and futures imagining that that I think you see as a good thing is actually going mm-hmm. down right now. So maybe I'll have to check in with you in a couple of years and see how well we're doing. But at least for now, hopefully some good stuff going down. Yeah, we will see. <laughs> yes, yes. Time will tell. Anyway, Ben, hey, thanks so much for being able to yeah. join us on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really fun talking to you. So that's all for this episode of the AI Futures Saturday series. This was episode four of 12. We're going to be jumping into five of 12. And remember, we're going to be moving farther and farther into the future considerations of AI governance. What happens is machines become vastly more capable than people, not just at playing chess, but in work and in creative endeavors. And what does that imply for governance, for the military, et cetera, et cetera? That's what we're going to start to eke our way into. And I think things are going to get more and more exciting. So I hope you'll join us here in our next Saturday episode, but also stay Stay tuned next Tuesday. We're jumping right back to practical AI use cases in the enterprise, and I look forward to seeing you on the show then.